0: You're listening to a 3CR podcast of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.
1: Welcome, Welcome to, to Unemployed, unemployed workers, workers Fight back, back. back. Join your hosts and...
2: And Kevin, that's me.
1: The second and fourth Friday of each month on The Sewer Show.
2: Between 5.30 and 6.30 pm.
1: Here on 3CR Community Radio. Radio.
2: This is a show where we explore macroeconomic solutions
1: for the unemployed and underemployed. Everyone, Everyone in, in our, our community, community has value. And value.
2: Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back.
1: Hello, Kevin. How are you?
2: I'm, I'm good. But I've I, I got to tell you, Anne, um, hmm. I, I've got no idea what, what's going on this week for the show. <laughs>
1: I'm, <laughs> I'm going to surprise you. <laughs> oh, excellent.
2: Great, great. I've done no homework. I come into this.
1: We have to admit, listeners, that Kevin has got no idea what I'm about to spring on him here. But you know what? When I came across modern monetary theory, which is that school of macroeconomic thought that you and I like to use to look at the economy. Mm-hmm. I just assumed that all progressives would run around doing the hallelujahs when they heard about it, like I did. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, it's surprising to see that some of them are actually quite antagonistic towards modern monetary theory. Yeah. And I especially thought the Marxists would be in love with modern monetary theory because they also take a macroeconomic view of the world. And I found it really surprising. It's almost like you know having a friend suddenly lash out at you, and you're like, "What did I just do?" <laughs> there's a red under the bed. I feel so paranoid.
0: I'd say there's nothing new about any of these ideas. Uh, all of them really are actually very old ideas. Modern monetary theory, even itself, is very much a misnomer in that it's not very modern, and it's not really a theory. Um, And uh, as I said, all of these ideas are resurrecting the ideas of some defunct economist, which is uh, John Maynard Keynes.
1: Adam Booth, who is the editor of socialist.net, giving a talk at the Revolution Festival in August 2019.
0: I would say we need the ideas of another German 19th century economist uh, to explain what really goes on with money. And you know who I'm talking about. It's Karl Marx.
1: So I was just wondering how you feel or react when you hear criticisms of modern monetary theory coming at you from the left.
2: Well, the thing about the left is this. I've always found the left to be far more intellectual than the right. The right are quite happy to sit behind a three-word slogan or some sort of marketing campaign. and
1: <laughs> They do marketing rather than intellectual analysis.
2: <laughs> they absolutely do. Yeah, it's about the message. They understand that the target audience, which is basically a an economically and politically uh, politically
1: disinterested, maybe
2: they're disinterested politically and economically illiterate. <laughs> uh, they don't understand, and they don't want to understand. They just like to have um, Rupert Murdoch present personalities to them, and then they vote on that. Mm-hmm. That's that's how they go. He's nice. He's not nice. You can trust him. You can't trust him. That's as far as they want to go. Mm-hmm. So. The right wing understands their target audience, and they have these big, bold banners that they fly behind. And so long as everybody's making money, they don't care. That's their agenda. Mm. The right is all about profits and making money and uh, maximizing an individual's economic potential, which is- the very definition of neoliberalism. Mm -hmm. The left, the left pull everything apart. Yes, Uh, Everything is under a microscope. And when somebody's theory doesn't align with somebody else's theory, well, they're they're, they're heretics and and we need to go and burn their house down. (laughs) So the Marxists have a fundamental, uh, and and I'm by no means uh, a Marxist scholar. I I really need to do a lot more reading on the Marxists. But they have a, a fundamental belief that You've got the worker, the means of production and the business owners, and it's a battle and never the twain shall meet. Workers need to protect themselves against um, the owners of business who will always try to exploit them, and that's how it will always be. Maybe this is the problem. MMT is we think that there could be some sort of cooperation if things are managed properly by government to make it work for workers and the owners of business and that it could work for both of us. Uh where is the max? Well
1: done, Kevin. You hit the nail there. And all um without any warning. Yes. I think one of the fundamental disagreements is whether or not the state can be used in the service of workers. And so MMT sees money as a public utility that is created by the state. So what you want to do is reclaim the state or use the state for doing the best for people and the environment. Whereas the Marxists would say, no, you actually have to overthrow the state.
2: <laughs> well, yes, you have to use the state to overthrow the, the owners of capital. So it's it's a little harsher. This is what happens, is that we on the left have these discussions uh, ad infinitum, and we always have, and then somebody disagrees and says, no, that will never possibly work. And the other person says, well, it could if we all tried. And they go, well, you're an idiot. And the next thing you know, it's on and, and everything's fractured and everything falls apart.
1: <laughs> so I was obviously very naive to think that we were all going to get along on the left.
2: Well... If you're a Marxist, you've been talking about this stuff for, I don't know, 100 years or more, yeah, you know, yeah. and, and you've studied it in detail. And then us MMTers rock in with this, <laughs> you know, relatively brand-new theory and say, no, nah, this is the way to do it. They're going to say, piss off. <laughs> Look, it's so, it's so much like that Monty Python skit, you know. Mm-hmm. Are you from the Liberation People's Front? Nah, fuck <laughs> off. Are you the Judean People's
0: Front? Fuck off. What? Judean People's Front. For the People's Front of Judea. Judean people's front come oh. listen the only people we ate more than the Romans are the fucking Judean people's front yeah. yes. Yes. and the Judean popular people's front oh, yes. Yes. Splitter. 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 and the people's front of Judea yes. splitters. Splitters. the people's front of Judea splitters we're the people's front of Judea oh
1: <laughs> well into this Monty Python world where Really, angels should fear to tread. I think I'm going to just jump right in. And to help me do that, I am going to speak with Dr. James Juniper, who is an economist and understands his MMT. So let's have a listen to James.
2: We like James. Good.
1: I guess what's motivated me to have this conversation even is just trying to wrap my head around why the political or economic left would be so antagonistic towards modern monetary theory. Mm. So I have to admit that uh, I have not read Das Kapital <laughs> or any of the volumes, <laughs> <laughs> but I thought I would call upon some help from someone who might have actually cracked open a bit of the marks and Dr. James Juniper was gracious enough to give us some of his time again and come on to the show. So welcome back to the show, James.
3: Thank you very much, Anne.
1: And I'll just remind everyone that you are an economist with the Newcastle School of Business.
3: Oh, that's right. I'm retired from teaching, but I'm a conjoint.
1: It might help just to orient me. Is there any way in which... Modern Monetary Theory, which is the school of economic thought that we use on this show to understand all things economic, is there a way in which there's some kind of fundamental, irreconcilable difference between Marx and MMT?
3: Well, personally, I don't think there is. One of the problems with reading Marx is that people often take assumptions, which he made in earlier parts of Das Kapital and apply it to his arguments in later parts. So he's developing a dialectical argument that becomes more and more concrete and more and more complex uh, as he moves between the three volumes.
1: So Marx himself is a bit of a moving target.
3: He can be, if you don't understand the nature of his arguments.
1: On this show, Kevin and I often will say that Modern monetary theory stands on the shoulders of Keynes. John Maynard Keynes, who was the great economist writing in the 30s and 40s, coming a bit after Marx, who was writing in the mid 1800s to late 1800s. And so I was wondering, is there any way that you could say that MMT stands on the shoulders of Marx?
3: Well, I think you could say that Keynes stands on the shoulders of Marx. Mm-hmm. And many of the people around him in the Cambridge Circus were sympathetic to Marx's uh, value theory and his notions of economic crisis as well.
1: The Cambridge Circus, what a great name. So who was that?
3: Well, it's all the people around Keynes, you know, in the uh, late 20s, early 30s, who um, contributed to the development of the general theory. And that includes Richard Kahn, who came up with the notion of the multiplier, uh, Piero Straffer, who engaged in critiques of Ludwig von Hayek, the Austrian theorist, and um, subsequently in 1960 published a book, The Production of Commodities by Means of Commodities, which uh, really is uh, an assault on the marginal productivity theory of income distribution, which sits at the core of neoclassical theory. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you have neoclassical economists like John Bates Clark, who on his return to America, he was confronted with the Haymarket Riots, and he was so sort of terrified by the threat of socialism, that he uh, sort of went off and developed the marginal productivity theory of income distribution <laughs> as a way of justifying the existence of profit. Mm-hmm. So profit is the remuneration to the owners of capital, and in his theory it's um, provided in direct proportion to the value contributed by capital at the margin. So every factor of production in this theory earns a rental that's directly in proportion to the value it contributes at the margin in the production process mm. and of course it's that theory that um, people in the cambridge circus realized was full of holes it was implicit in straffer's critique of hayek's uh, book prices and production um, in the 30s Van joan robinson talked about it in the 50s and um, it uh, received its most formal expression in Straffer's book, The Production of Commodities by Means of Commodities, which was published in 1960.
1: So what you're alluding to then are these two two sort of great strands of economic thought, the result of which is today we have the dominant neoliberal discourse, which uh, is standing on the shoulders of these neoclassical economists, whereas we, who are questioning all of that, Uh, standing on the shoulders of Marx and Keynes and the rest of the Cambridge Circus.
3: Right. I mean, I would say that neoliberalism probably owes um, a lot specifically to the Austrian economists who came from Vienna, Mm -hmm. where you have German varieties of neoliberalism as well as the Austrian, and many of them uh, escaped from Austria during the war and ended up in places like Chicago. So University of Chicago in America has a very strong Austrian orientation.
0: Mm-hmm. You're listening to
1: 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. There's a red
0: under
4: the bed. I feel so paranoid.
0: Now, Keynes correctly identified something that Marx had already identified, which is this vicious circle that you get into in capitalism.
1: Adam Booth, the editor of socialist.net.
0: In other words, where you have a lack of demand due to unemployment, you'll then have a lack of investment due to the lack of demand, and then you'll have a lack of jobs because of the lack of investment. And this is a a downward spiral that that is uh, impossible really for capitalism to, to get out of. The question we have to ask really, and what the Keynesians never really explain, is why have we got no growth today? Why has private investment, business investment, now dried up? Marx explained that real growth comes from a development of the productive forces, from the capitalists reinvesting their surplus into new means of production, and under capitalism, that is driven by profits. In normal times, the capitalists will get their profits reinvested because of competition. They're trying to seek out new technologies, new machinery, that will lower their cost of production below that of their competitors, and in doing so, uh, allow them to make a super profit. But the point is that in this process, you have the seeds of of, of its own destruction, where that competition drives down conditions, and the productive forces expand and expand until they come up against the limits of the market. And that is what Marx called overproduction. He said you get these crises of overproduction, where the productive forces go beyond the limits of the market. Now, Keynesians, by contrast, don't talk about overproduction, but what they call underconsumption—that you just have a lack of what Keynes called effective demand. In other words, there's no demand on the one hand for uh, capital goods in terms of investment from capitalists, but on the other side, consumer goods in terms of the purchasing power of households. It's not like the capitalists like stagnation, like depression. Again, with all the competition and the cuts, the point is growth isn't something you can just turn on and off like a tap. So,
1: you know, when I was listening to Adam Booth give his talk back in 2019, and I picked him out as a typical example of a critique of modern monetary theory coming from the Marxist left. Mm. And if I was just listening to that talk, I would get this impression that there was an unresolved issue between Marx and Keynes, which is this issue of whether when we're looking at a crisis moment in the economy, and I guess that looks like a recession or a depression or something like that, it seems like Adam was describing that as a debate over are we looking at a problem of overproduction, which is where the businesses are making too much for people to buy, or are we looking at a problem of underconsumption which is well, nobody's buying the stuff <laughs> and he seemed to oppose karl marx and john maynard keynes on that issue so i'm just wondering is there this unresolved problem between the two and mm. and is it possible to solve this problem of underconsumption
3: well i think in a sense overproduction and underconsumption are two sides of the same coin
1: dr james juniper
3: what you're really talking about, I think, is the tendency for the rate of profit to fall. I mean, Marx's theory of crisis was multidimensional, and he certainly um, put a lot of emphasis on realization crises, which that was his expression for the Keynesian case of uh, insufficient effective demand. But also within Marx, you have this notion of a tendency for the rate of profit to fall. You know, profit, interest, and rent, as Marx saw it. Uh, Is derived from surplus value, and surplus value is derived from the fact that more time is spent in production by living labour than is required to reproduce the means of subsistence. And the gap between the subsistence wage and the total amount of labour time applied by living labour is the source of profit, interest, and rent in Marx. And in the political economy of Marx and Ricardo, it's a reproduction theory. So, in that theory, labor has a very important role, of course, as the sole source of value. And if you are continually pulling labor out of production through innovation and technological change, it's conceivable that um, you don't have enough labor generating value to keep things rolling over. So, uh, it's really an em- empirical question of whether there's a tendency for the rate of profit to fall. And if you look at empirical works like the work of Shaikh and Tomac, when they look at um, the rate of profit in America over a long period, um, they show that it actually was falling, but because of an increase in the ratio of unproductive labor to productive labor. Mm. I mean, I suppose the labor involved in things like advertising mm. and supervisory labor And the control function in capitalism becomes more and more important. So you get this large group of people involved in surveillance and monitoring and bean counting, um, which are seen not to be productive.
1: I'm just imagining Dave Graeber's BS jobs.
3: (laughs) Yeah, right. That's it. Anyway, so I suppose the jury's out on on whether, you know, Mm. there is a tendency for the rate of profit to fall.
4: so
0: paranoid the state can employ people it can invest but this doesn't create value instead what the state does is it redistributes value from one part of the economy to another it, it redistributes value created in the real economy basically that you can't just create demand you know you can the, what you're effectively talking about here is distributing wealth from one part of the economy to another but you're not creating any new value you can't create demand Out of thin air.
1: Adam Booth. So where are we with this apparent conflict? Mm.
3: There's a certain sort of machismo amongst some Marxists because they want to um, question whether we can return to full employment through Keynesian means, through increasing uh, the level of effective demand. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you have the rate of profit falling for these reasons, then uh, increasing effective demand is not going to be a sufficient response. And that's why uh, you you get this sort of criticism on the part of many Marxists.
1: Okay. Is this tendency of the rate of profit to fall, is that what the Marxists say is the inherent contradiction of capitalism, or is that something else?
3: Yeah, sometimes they do. I mean, Adam, for example, gave the metaphor about there's no point in pumping a bicycle tyre if it has a puncture in it.
0: Neither Keynesianism nor MMT really offer a theory of crisis. They really only offer a suggestion of how the capitalists can try to get out of a crisis once it has already occurred. It's a bourgeois intellectual telling the capitalists how they can temporarily save themselves and their system. And this is where obviously the Keynesians and their MMT acolytes today suggest things like public investment and spending. But they don't say why is there a lack of business investment and hence no growth in the first place? Why is investment now at an all-time low? Uh, This was summed up quite well in The Guardian where the economics editor, Larry uh, Elliott, I believe his name is, he described MMT as like being akin to pumping up a flat tire. But we've got to ask the question, why was there a puncture in the first place? And that's something none of them have ever explained. Why is there this downward spiral of depression and slump?
3: And for him, the puncture is the falling rate of profit. Mm-hmm. And if you keep on pumping, it's not going to do any good because the punch is still there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not necessarily a, a good metaphor because... A puncher isn't a falling rate of profit, but anyway. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Kevin and I always get lost in our analogies. It's like we push them as far as we can.
3: <laughs>
1: but it really does help. Like you need them for people especially who aren't math heads.
3: That's well, both the power of metaphor and the danger, isn't it? <laughs> hmm.
1: So so we what are we saying? That we don't really have this irreconcilable difference between Marx and Keynes. But we do have a a brand of Marxism that will say there's just no point in trying to increase your aggregate demand. That's just not going to get you anywhere.
3: Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it.
4: Yes, there's a red under the bed. I feel so paranoid. I thought the commies left Australia and they had been destroyed.
0: But they'll keep coming back, she says, until the poor are free they can print money, but they can't print teachers and doctors. They can't print schools and hospitals. And MMT kind of recognizes this. It says that the real limit to what a state can spend is the resources in society, similar to what we'd say in the sense of the real limit to any uh, economy is the development of the productive forces. But this then really begs a question, which is what I think MMT and Keynes uh, also never really explain, is if you've got all of these resources out there that aren't being utilized currently, well, why? You know, Why is it that under capitalism, these essentials of life, like doctors and, and hospitals, like schools and teachers, are not being utilized? Why are they not being provided? Why is there such a lack of these things? Why, in other words, does the state have to step in in the first place? In fact, what we find under capitalism is not that there's a lack of resources and uh, therefore inflation is a problem, what you have under capitalism is what Marx explained poverty amidst plenty. You have a housing crisis amidst empty houses, these things being used as assets rather than homes. You have millions of people unemployed, and yet clearly there is a need for people to be building things. And the reason for this obviously lies in understanding capitalism's crisis, which are not crises of underconsumption but of overproduction, of a saturated market enormous excess capacity exists on a world scale. And this is an intrinsic flaw, an intrinsic contradiction within capitalism due to the way in which profits come about. The origins of profits of surplus value lie in the fact that the working class does not receive back the full value of its labor. Workers are paid for their labor power in the form of wages, but they produce far more in the course of the day than what they're paid back. They only receive a fraction. And therefore the working class under capitalism can never afford to buy back all that it produces. The capitalists will always have this uh, excess capacity because capitalism produces for a profit. And if they can't sell their commodities because of this, this overproduction, then that means they will stop producing and the economy grinds to a halt. People starve and are made unemployed, Marx says in the Communist Manifesto, not because there's too little, but because there's too much.
1: I get a bit confused as to whether we're talking about a problem of underproduction or a problem of overproduction where there's too much stuff that consumers are not buying. On the underproduction side, Adam was talking about things like the current situation where investment is at an all-time low. So these corporations are sitting on squillions of dollars that they're not using to invest in more productivity. The Marxist phrase being, you know, this poverty amidst plenty. So, are we under, or are we over?
3: <laughs> well, I think uh, it's uh, always both, isn't it? Because production within a capitalist economy is always production for the sake of expanding profit.
1: Dr. James Juniper.
3: And if the profit is not being realized, then production is going to be curtailed. So, where Marx talked about realization crises, what he was saying is that the value, which is intrinsic to the sum of commodities, is not being realized because there's an insufficiency of effective demand. Mm. I mean, when you listen to some Marxist commentators, uh, they're suggesting that if you increase effective demand, it will have no leverage over real productive activity, and I think that's to misunderstand the situation in which you have unemployed resources and uh, underemployed labor. If you have an underutilization of labor and of capital, then an increase in effective demand is obviously going to engender increased productive activity and that will see an increase in the flow of commodities uh, into the market and i think we come back to this notion that there's an insufficiency of investment and the idea that somehow corporations are are holding on to their money instead of spending it that's very much part of the realization crisis if too much saving is going on if, if firms aren't investing, then you get a realisation crisis, which is basically what Keynes was talking about in, in terms of the, the insufficiency of effective demand.
2: You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back, a show all about the economics and experience
1: of unemployment and underemployment, here on 3CR Community Radio. There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new t-shirt or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter at 3CR and Instagram at 3CR Melbourne, but... Don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855 AM. Keep in touch. 3cr.org.au Yes, there's a red under the bed. I feel so paranoid. I
4: thought
1: the commies left Australia. And they had been destroyed.
0: And I would say the key problem with MMT is it flows from its uh, what it claims is its understanding of money, but is in fact a misunderstanding of money.
1: Adam Booth, the editor of socialist.net.
0: MMT says that money is imposed by states. The the origins of money is the state coming along and saying you need to pay us taxes and uh, in order to do that you need to obviously pay us in a certain currency and you'd create the demand for a currency by imposing taxes on a population. This originates with an idea called the state theory of money, or chartalism as it's also known, which was invented by a 19th century German economist called George Knapp. Now Marx explained that money and the state both have common origins in the development of class society, and the development of money rises with the development of commodity production and exchange, the division of society into classes, the division of labor, and the production of things not for individual consumption or for societal consumption, but for exchange, for a market. That's what a commodity is, something produced for exchange on a market.
3: I guess one of the issues, of course, is that MMT talks about fiat money and adopts a charterless view that the value of that fiat currency is determined by the fact that you need it to pay taxes. And then you ask the question, where do people get the money from that they need to pay taxes with? And of course, they get it from the government. So the existence of taxation promotes the demand for money as defined by the state and also gives the state disposition over the goods and services produced by the non-government sector by virtue of the fact that people have to acquire the money first before they can use it to pay their taxes. And The issue then is, well, how does that relate to Marx's notions of of money as measure, as means of circulation, and instrument of hoarding?
1: Exactly. (laughs) I was wondering if this was going to be the place where we just have to agree to disagree.
3: (laughs) Well, I don't think so. And again, it's quite subtle, because Marx doesn't really begin to talk about the nature of fiat currency until he gets to Volume 3 of Capital. Um, I
1: would never have made it, James. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, in Volume Two of Capital, you know, he hasn't really begun to talk about hoarding. So I think we need to clarify the difference between hoarding and saving to understand what Marx is talking about.
0: There's
4: a red under the
0: bed. Money rises up out of the system as like a yardstick, uh, a representation of value. It's like a universal equivalent, Marx said, basically that allows the act of exchange to be broken up into a purchase on one side and a sale on another. In other words, it facilitates trade. It facilitates exchange. Fundamentally, this is the point of money: is a representation of value, and this value is socially necessary labour time, Marx said. Money, in other words, has no intrinsic value. The money has a value uh, because of its representation of value. It is a symbol of value.
3: I mean, one of the um, complaints you'll often hear is that Marxists say that, well, the Keynesians don't understand that money has value that's related to the total quantity of commodities in circulation and the labor time embodied in those commodities. And from a, a Marxist perspective, that's true. Money is a universal equivalent, it's a measure of value. And it's also a means of circulation, the unit in which prices are denominated. Mm. And prices of commodities are determined by the amount of socially necessary labor time required for their production. And then it also serves as a store of value. Marx talks about how money is sort of directly convertible into any other commodity. And of course, that's exactly what Keynes described as liquidity.
0: However, just because money has a symbolic value, it doesn't mean it's arbitrary or subjective. It still has a basis in objective conditions. In other words, you can't print money without limits. There's no free lunch under capitalism. The money that's in circulation has to be tied to something real. It has to be tied to the value of the commodities that are also in circulation that that money is fundamentally representing. So in other words if you print more money you create more money you increase the money supply that has to match an increase in the commodities that are in circulation also if not then you do get inflation a general increase in prices because you have more money chasing the same amount of goods
3: there's quite a good marxist literature on marxist critiques of the quantity theory of money now People can also confuse two different things. There's savings and there's hoarding. And Marx talked a lot about hoarding uh, in the context of the functions of money. So hoarding has that function of equating the means of circulation to the needs of trade.
1: What do you mean by the needs of trade then?
3: There's a complementarity between hoarding and circulation. And that complementarity preserves exchange ratios between money and The intrinsic value in commodities. Marx expresses it as the river of circulation never overflows its banks. And that equilibrium is established by the hoarding function. And if we do understand those relationships, then we can directly criticize the quantity theory of money.
4: Hmm.
3: I mean, Marx uses very different terminology to that of Keynes, but I think there are many resonances that can be identified. Mm -hmm. Um, Unless you're going out of your way to try and establish a, a demarcation, a, a difference between Marx and, and Keynes. And then you'll say, oh, no, no, Marx is saying very different things here.
1: <laughs> I guess from what you're saying, I'm still not seeing why you would say that chartalism contradicts Marx's view of money. Because we're both in agreement that fiat currency intrinsically has no value. And on the one hand, we're saying that it gains its value through the need to pay your taxes. Mm. And then on the other hand, we're saying it gains its value because it manages to drive how the market works. So is there a fundamental disagreement there?
3: Well, I personally, I don't think there is. Mm. I don't think charitalism says that we have to ignore the sort of broader contractual role of money in focusing on tax. I think the reality is that if you've got a token, you know, a representative of intrinsic value, that token has to have street cred, if you like. And the way in which street cred is lent to it is that it's required to pay tax. Mm. And because it has that street credit, it then becomes a universal representative of wealth and a universal equivalent. So, um, yeah, I think that's the way i reconcile chartalism with uh, Marxist Interpretation of uh, the functions of money. Yes,
4: there's a red under the bed. I feel so
0: paranoid.
1: I thought the commies left Australia and they had been destroyed.
0: And what you see is that modern monetary theory is very much tied in. It's, it's pretty much in the same breath these days as the demand for a green New Deal. In other words, how are we going to afford a green New Deal? Modern monetary theory. The two. Very much go hand in hand.
1: Adam Booth, the editor of socialist.net, giving a talk at the Revolution Festival in August 2019.
0: What this really boils down to is the idea that we can reform capitalism, that somehow we can make capitalism nice and responsible, and these days, obviously, green as well, a nice green capitalism. In other words, we can try and patch up the system rather than overthrowing it. Even today, we see no amount of managing or trying to regulate capitalism is going to solve the climate crisis, which is fundamentally due to capitalism and its insatiable drive for profit.
3: I mean, there are pressing issues in areas like climate change, where what we need is a, a government that is willing to plan infrastructure development and a major transformation in how we make things and how we generate power and how we recycle. Mm-hmm so that there are uh, enormous sort of pressures on the apparatus of the state to find solutions. I mean, of course, we're aware of the Green New Deal proposals amongst the left Democrats in America, and similar proposals have been taken up in Australia. Mm -hmm. And they're an expression of that effort to reconcile macroeconomic policy on one hand with climate change and environmental policy on the other.
1: So is that attempt to make that reconciliation, is that really just this reformist agenda that is never going to get us anywhere we, where we need to go and that we're just trying to reform this broken capitalist system when we really need a more revolutionary agenda? And is MMT just this tool in this reformist agenda?
3: From my own experience uh, over the last, uh, you know, 66 years or so, um, <laughs> Periods uh, of unemployment, uh, of stagnation, where we have precariousness in the labour market, are not periods that are conducive to transformative politics. And uh, we've had neoliberal policies in place now for over 40 years, and a lot of it has involved attacks against the industrial arm of the working class and trade unions, and it has really damaged the broader democratic structures within society.
0: You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital
1: and on the internet www.3cr.org.au Yes there's a red under the bed I feel so
4: paranoid I
0: thought the commies left Australia and they had been destroyed. But they'll keep
4: coming back, she says, until the poor are free.
0: I would say rather than printing money or creating money, we need to rationally plan production. And the, the, the point is you can't plan what you don't control and you don't control what you don't own. So our demand is not for the state to step in and to print money, the capitalist state in particular, obviously, not be stepping in to, to print money, to, to, to just spend uh, left, right and centre. We can take production out of the market, stop commodity production exchange and plan the economy under a socialist plan of production in a democratic and rational way. Having an economy based on needs, not profits. Not printing money, but doing away with the money system itself.
1: The way Marxists are often looking towards the future is that they're looking towards a post-capitalist world. And I guess one of the things I'm starting to understand with modern monetary theory is this idea that you can separate out what capitalism is from what markets are. And often I think the two get conflated and we even nowadays conflate neoliberalism with capitalism mm. because I'm now understanding the, the money story as this idea that monetary systems have existed probably for 5,000 years or more of human history, whereas markets have existed less long and capitalism has existed less longer than that. In fact, you can have a monetary system without a market and you can have a market without capitalism. Mm -hmm. So do we need the revolution to create a post-capitalist world? And what would your, your vision be of how markets might exist?
3: Now, that's a great question, um, because I think one of the things that um, developments in, in China have shown us is that the, the Austrian economists impose this rigid dichotomy between market and plan. Mm-hmm. They see markets as so superior in terms of their distribution of information and that sort of thing. Um, now, in China, they've used market mechanisms to liberate the forces of production, if you will, but those market mechanisms are embedded within a socialist system, whereas markets for us are embedded within a capitalist system. And the institutional form is conditioned by the system in which it operates. And you can have forms of planning which are fully integrated with markets. But they're very different from the central planning systems that used to be in place, say, under Goss Plan in the former Soviet Union. And your point about markets being able to exist without capitalism, yeah, markets within a socialist system will operate in a very different way to markets within a capitalist system. Mm. Under neoliberalism, the idea is that you understand the logic of the market and then you can reproduce it in areas where it hasn't operated before. Mm. But that still imposes this dichotomy between market and plan. And I think what we've learned from um, the experiments in uh, former Yugoslavia and Hungary and in China currently is that planning can become a much more, a richer process in ways that complement markets, Mm. but still achieve these desirable outcomes when it comes to infrastructure investment and transformative processes of capital accumulation.
1: So you don't have to do away with private actors buying and selling, (laughs) in order to get to post-capitalism?
3: No, I don't think so, no. But I mean, at the moment, we've abandoned planning. There may be a little bit of planning going on in large infrastructure projects. But uh, if we are going to transform the world to overcome problems of global warming, Mm. the level of infrastructure investment is going to be much greater than it has been in Australia. Mm -hmm. And we need to return to a a more planned way of doing things, but in ways that are not in opposition to markets, but complement market mechanisms.
1: Well, who knows? We might be seeing these transformations sooner than we expect and get a bit smarter about how we can use these human-made institutions. Certainly, if uh, Mother Nature has any say in it. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, it's been great speaking with you again, James. I do appreciate you teaching us a little bit more about how to look at the world through an economic lens. Oh,
3: thank you very much, Anne. I really enjoyed it. Bye-bye.
2: Have you ever thought that maybe, um, like we know we've got Larry and Larissa as our listeners. Mm. Maybe we should just go out for dinner with them uh, once a fortnight. <laughs>
1: really, maybe that would be the simpler way of doing it. If we just all sat around a table. Who needs to edit a radio show?
2: We're just sitting here bombarding them with information and we don't really give them a chance to, to talk yeah, back.
1: Yeah, that's true. Hey, Kevin. Mm-hmm. Speaking of um, getting out around the table, we need to get out of here.
2: We need to m- uh, move out of the way, make room for Mafalda, who comes in after us. Mm-hmm. Thank you again for another marvellous show, uh, Anne, and uh, we'll see you again in a couple of weeks.
1: See you then, Kevin. Bye. You've been listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back.
2: Join us the second and fourth Friday of each and every month as part of the Sewer Show on 3CR.
1: Listen to this show as a podcast by going to 3cr.org.au.
2: We thank all our guests, and I thank you, Anne.
1: And I thank you, Kevin. Oh, no, no,
2: the pleasure was all mine.
1: Oh, no, Kevin, the pleasure was all mine.
2: You mean all the pleasure was yours?
1: Kevin, I think I took all the pleasure on this one.
2: <laughs> well, if you took all the pleasure, that means I, there's no pleasure for me at all. And I, oh. I quite enjoyed myself. So if you've got all the pleasure, then what, I had no I had no pleasure?
1: I think we should share the pleasure.
2: <laughs> well, we're going to have to share the pleasure because, you know, like, I don't mind you having pleasure, that's great. You have as much pleasure as you like, but don't take all the pleasure.
1: Well, it was very pleasurable, so I'm glad that it was pleasurable.